Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. This is Cindy House, and you're checking out Basic Folk, a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Thanks for listening. Some updates. There is going to be, if you're listening to this on Thursday, September 3rd, or Friday, September 4th, there is still time for you to catch the Basic Folk round that is happening at Club Passim's Campfire Festival. It's on Friday, September 4th at 8 o'clock Eastern. We're going to get live music from none other than Katie Tunstall, Jenny Owen Youngs, Sonny War, and Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople, who you may recognize the name of from doing all of the music on this podcast. All artists have been guests, previous guests on uh, Basic Folk, and so excited. You can find details at passseam.org. And if you missed it, you can actually go back and watch it. It's all been archived, but so excited. We have a real treat today. Laura Cortese is on her way to legendary status in the fiddle community. The San Francisco native has worked for years honing her sound, bringing together traditions. She was raised on at Fiddle Camp, a love of songwriting and experimental lush indie soundscapes. She has performed under Laura Cortese in the dance cards for the past two albums. And with her new release, Bitter Better, the imagined LC in the DC sound has been achieved. In our conversation, Laura takes us back to growing up with divorced parents, discovering a love of creating music through community, melding all her musical interests, her iconic self-drive that has achieved so much, and obviously, fashion. Also, we talk about life after trauma and living in Belgium with her musician partner while expecting their first baby. It's so easy to talk to Laura, and this interview went on for almost two hours. It took me like a week to cut it down, so this is all killer, no filler. Thanks to Laura for her wisdom, her insight, and her friendship. We're going to take a listen to a song from Laura's new album, and then we'll get to our conversation with Laura on Basic Folk. Here's Typhoon from Laura Cortese and the Dance Cards.
you know, we'll see what happens. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I have. You never know. I'm. I have my tissues. Um, nice. I'm already well, crying. I'm, um, I'm like <laughs> pregnant, emotional lady. So I'm just gonna definitely. Okay, great. We'll just like get into it. Okay. You were born in San Francisco where you lived until you went away to college. So like when you were 17, 18? I guess I was 19 because I went to school for one year at the University of California at Santa Cruz. Oh, that is information I did not know. When you're trying to figure out where you're going to go to school, you're like, yes, Berkeley College of Music. That's what I want to do with my life. And then you're like, ha, 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 no way can I afford that. And so you pick like a state school in your state, state of California, that seems like it has interesting people <laughs> and like you feel at home there to some degree which is what I did so you see Santa Cruz was a whole year banana slugs wow. go banana slugs that's so funny that's the mascot banana slugs no what was your home life like growing up in San Francisco my parents got divorced when I was like three years old so there was a period of time when I lived in the East Bay uh, which is where my mom could like afford to buy a house, but she still worked in San Francisco. So we used to live in Richmond, California and commute every day into San Francisco. So, but then when I was like 10 or 12, we moved back into the city. That actually, when we moved there, we we lived like, I don't know, maybe a five minute drive from my dad's house. <laughs> so like, I saw my dad one day a week, but we were like very close neighborhoods. I could have run away to his house if I had ever chosen to. <laughs> What was the difference between but, your mom's house and your dad's house? My dad had cable. MTV? MTV. My mom and I had like a, a hand-me-down like black and white television. Wow. Eventually color. <laughs> but I also wasn't very into TV as a kid. I was like the type of kid that was like, I don't want to sit in front of the television. My mom's like single mother, you know, like she's like, I just want to shower. Can you please watch one program? <laughs> and I like refused to do it. Uh, I wanted to be outside playing all the time. Eventually, she actually, <laughs> she set me up with a tape recorder and she sh showed me how it would record my voice. And she was like, tell it a story. I just need two minutes by myself. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, and, and as a kid, I also like the only kind of show I was willing to watch was a cooking show. Eventually, like my mom could get me to watch a cooking show. So it, it wasn't that like having cable was the biggest deal, but I do remember like seeing videos and MTV and you know, if I think about it, like at my dad's house, I had exactly the room I wanted that like I picked, I had a chandelier, like a mini chandelier because I was obsessed with chandeliers. You know, it's like, and if you look back on it now, you think when your relationship isn't that emotionally close, but a parent is trying to express that they love you, they're going to do these things to like make the the room feel like yours, exactly like what you want. Whereas my mom and I were extremely emotionally close. Mm. But but that can also be, you know, sort of like gender roles that people are playing. Like my dad came from a super traditional Italian family. He was born in Italy. Cooking was a huge thing for him, like having a really like making a really nice meal and having a nice meal together. At my mom's house, like we, we would have like deep emotional conversations for whatever capacity I had as I aged, mm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> and And that kind of stuff wasn't so common with my dad, although I do remember like when I was 16 or 17, like starting to touch into that, like getting to that stage with my dad when I was a little older and could could motivate the conversation. You know, just the, the questions you have as a kid of divorced parents, like, but you like, really? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> you have this like wonderful sense of adventure. 
in your music, your personality. Also, when your band goes on tour, you work in adventures and swimming stops. Where did that sense of adventure start for you in life? And can you talk a little bit more about what it looked like for you as a kid? Yeah, I I think that's really something I got from my mom. I I would say something I got from my mom, but also it's not to say that my dad didn't have that adventurous spirit also, but when I was 12, my mom first took me to Europe. We were actually finishing. A, my grandmother had been on maybe her first European trip ever um, with her then sort of boyfriend at the time, and he passed away on the plane. Mm. And her trip, yeah, it was very, really tragic. So th- I think it was either the next year or a few years later, my mom said, okay, we're going to finish your trip with you. I mean, at 12, to to get to an adventure like that, getting on a plane and going that distance was with your mother and your grandmother. Like, it was very cool. My mom, we always went camping a couple times a summer. I mean, it was car camping, but it was like two weeks in a campground, like just doing our thing, hiking. I think that mixed with the fact that my dad was actually born in Italy. And I always had this sort of lore in my head of like what that was like. And I didn't, I didn't first visit the town where my dad was born until I was, I don't know, 28, something like that. But just knowing that there was this place that we were connected to far away, I kind of always had that, my eye on, on wanting to experience that kind of thing. And when I did actually move here to Belgium, it was f- funny because my mom remembers when she first went to Europe and she was 24, her and my dad went backpacking for a year around Europe. My mom remembers stopping in different places and being like, I could live here. But she never did take that leap and move. But I, but it was funny when I finally moved here, she was like, this is something I sort of thought I would do. And here you are doing it. It is a, a way that you think about it like, yeah, this is not just like some spontaneous idea that I had to be this kind of adventurous person. You learned violin in elementary school. Were you, how old were you when you started? Nine. Nine. And then your grandmother played it and you were playing in the orchestra at school. Just the worst. Yeah. <laughs> what did nine-year-old Laura think of the violin? I mean, I just wanted to play it. I was compelled to play the violin. Like, Grandma plays the violin. It's I can't believe this thing makes sound like that. I want to do it. I just That's the thing that I want to try to do. But I don't remember beyond that urge having thoughts or feelings about the violin until I sort of remember being bored of it by the time I was 12 in, in orchestra. like, And it wasn't that I was bored of the violin. It was that I was bored staring at a music stand in in an orchestra in an orchestra setting that didn't where mostly you you didn't talk to the people around you you just like played your part and watched the conductor's stick <laughs> <laughs> i had much more fun in the elementary school version of it where you know i actually the same the same teacher that i had in elementary school her name was ann voller that taught me how to like actually play the violin she was the one music teacher for the school. So she taught all the instruments that they had to offer. She also did musicals with us. And I was way more into doing those sort of social musical type thing. As you got more serious, you got better. And now you're like, you have to show up before school to sit in an orchestra 
and stare at a music stand. You have to get up super early <laughs> when you're like going through puberty and you're like, I just want to sleep till 10 a.m. And <laughs> like stare at a music stand without much social interaction. And I was like, I don't know that this, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was about 12 and I met a little girl who, when we were camping with my mom at Lassen Volcanic National Park, and she basically was just bragging like, I'm going to fiddle camp next week. <laughs> and I was like, what's fiddle camp? I want to go to fiddle camp. And so my mom got the information, you know, and wrote it down. And the next year I went to fiddle camp. Everyone at the the camp was holding a violin, you know. So it's so you go from being sort of everyone is like your same age, varying varying levels, conductor, teacher at the front, staring at a music stand, kind of very structured to like no structure. I mean, not no structure, but you can pick which class you feel like going to. When it gets warm in the afternoon, you're not playing the fiddle. You're in the pool or you're playing soccer. Everything is by ear. Everyone is, there are people that are 75 who are beginners or at the same level as you who's 12. And there are people who are 15 that can like play circles around (laughs) everyone. And it's just much more about, you know, being and and being a person and that that was was really what excited me the idea that like everyone here is excited about the violin everyone here is excited about the fiddle about music but it's the the fundamental goal is to connect and i couldn't have articulated it at that age but i enjoyed being in that connection and i was swept away by it How did fiddle camp change your relationship to your instrument? Well, I think at specifically at 12, I was I was ready to just be done. I was like, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And I did definitely didn't want to go to orchestra. And I remember saying to my mom, like, oh, do I have to go to orchestra? And she was like, well, I can't afford private lessons. And I'm not just going to, you know, you're not just going to go to fiddle camp for one week a year and not play in between. So you need to go to orchestra if you want to go to fiddle camp. And if your teacher says you have to practice, you have to practice, but you don't have to, it doesn't have to be the reason you're doing it. It's just, you have to have some connection to this instrument between, I started to have my own motivation for like, okay, these are the tunes that everybody's playing. I want to learn that tune because I know that when I come back to fiddle camp, I'm going to get to jam in the big jam with all the people playing the fiddles in the big hall. And I started to have, it wasn't just like an, you know, a conductor hands you a piece and so you practice it. It was like, what are the tunes that all my friends know? I want to learn those tunes. I want to know this because it allows me to be a bigger part of this community. Mm. And it just... It's like such a social that, aspect. Yeah. that I mean, for me, that's that was what it was. And then eventually there were players who I started to to hear that I preferred their style to someone else's, you know, but that between the ages of... 12 and let's say 15, it was just about learning the repertoire so Mm. I could belong. Yeah. But I I do remember at 15, like all of a sudden that shift of like having players that I Mm. thought their style was so cool. You developed like a palette. Exactly. Like my personal taste and who I started to obsess about and learn every tune off of their album. (laughs) When you were 16, you experienced a female teacher for the first time at fiddle camp, Catriona McDonald of the Shetland Islands. 
What did her presence and instruction mean to you at the time? Yeah, Katrina is, I mean, she's just a sassy, badass, you know, powerful woman. And it was a completely sort of up till then, most of the teachers, let's say other than Alistair Fraser, whose camp it was, a lot of the, the teachers were sort of like old guys who were great at playing the fiddle. And they would play the fiddle the way they played the fiddle and they would try to express how they played the fiddle <laughs> to you at, in a group class setting. But Katrina was, I think, aware. She grew up in a time where there were very few female fiddle players. So she was aware at how many young women there were sitting in the front row and, and was aware of of sort of that she was representing a, a possibility, a world of possibility that we hadn't necessarily experienced. And there was a lot of humor in her teaching. She was also one of the first, um, you know, fiddle teachers at, in a camp setting that I'd had that had actually studied music in college. You know, she was there doing arrangements and like teaching us these like really specific harmony parts. You know, Al- Alistair was someone who would inspire us to be curious about how how we could write a harmony, like sort of curiosity-driven discussing, well, what would you want to bring this tune? He he, he was in, interested in arrangements, but some of the other old guys were just like, here's the tune, play the tune, we're going to go dance, you know, which also <laughs> has value. But Katrina was making these like very lush arrangements and interesting harmony parts with like unexpected notes. And it was a very like open world of possibility that I hadn't experienced in terms of textures and yeah, coming up with arrangement ideas, not to mention just like she was snarky and would tease people. And when, when the class would get a little unruly, she would have a humorous way of like bringing us back. (laughs) And it was, it was a really different energy and it was so inspiring to just see someone who was, I guess, 10, 10 years older, I think, and go like, wow. Okay. So that's like, this isn't just a thing that I'm doing for now. This is this has possibility. Like she has come all the way from Scotland. She's been hired to come here. There's a future that could exist with playing music if I, if I want it. Hmm. For as long as I have known you, which is a long time, Laura, very long, you have been always like fearlessly yourself. And in thinking about like the stereotypical, violin player or Hmm. like female fiddle player you know you think of like meek mild well-behaved but you have always been like brave innovative and just like wild and in the same way that Katrina had that impact on you what effect do you see the way you carry yourself in the world on a younger generation of fiddle players yeah wow good question (laughs) (laughs) I mean it well I will say that at this stage now the age that I am now, I, I, I'm aware when I'm hanging out with a, a fiddle player who's 18 or 16, I'm aware that they're looking up to me. I'm aware that, that what I say to them has a lot of impact. And so I'm actually almost always really careful not to tell them my, so much my opinion, but to try to help them come up with the questions to form their own opinion. Oh, like a cognitive therapist. (laughs) 
Oh, is that what they do? <laughs> <laughs> well, but you know, just because I don't, I don't want, I don't want a bunch of little, I mean, I remember I, I, I've experienced it where I show up somewhere and there's a bunch of people that are like, I learned this tune just like you play it. And then they play it. And I'm like, oh my God, you really did. <laughs> and, and that it's incredibly flattering, but I, and I, I used to do that same thing too. I mean, that's, that's how you learn. You, you imitate the people that you admire and you, who you admire switches over time and you certain remnants stay with you from each of these people and but slowly you develop into your own person but i am very conscious that i i what i do want i don't want them to m- mimic me entirely because there's limit i know my limitations and i see that if they only do that they'll be limiting themselves mm. so i'm i'm often trying to ask them questions that cause them to go broader and, and sometimes they have skills already that things that would be difficult for me to do because maybe they've studied classical music or um, things that I wouldn't naturally be drawn to that they are able to do and and to try to help them question certain things. But I I do know that if I look back, like for example, you know Jenna Moynihan who plays in the dance cards, we, we always joke that like it was first a class that I taught where she like played and sang at the same time. Well, I don't, I certainly did not think at that moment that I was a mentor to her as a musician. Like our age difference was maybe 12 years or something like that. I wasn't yet thinking about the impact I had. Mm. And it wasn't until like she's in my band and she's playing and she's, incredible. And then she said to someone else, oh, well, Laura actually taught me like the first time how to sing and play at you know, the same time. I was like, what? Because <laughs> I, I, had, I had transitioned to thinking of her as a peer and I didn't really remember this period where I was in my 20s and already teaching and she was still a teenager coming to camp. You know, mm. So I would say it's taken a while to realize that impact, but I I'm very aware of it. And I do, a lot of the choices I make, even with my band, have to do with wanting, remembering how it felt to to see the possibility and wanting to present that possibility with the music that I do for, for who's going to come next. Hmm. Um, before we talk about like Berkeley and Boston, I mentioned her as a joke earlier, um, Hanukkah, Hanukkah Castle. Yes. Who And with um, Lissa Schneckenberger, it seems like the three of you are like these incredibly connected, innovative players together. You had a band together called Haleli. Can you True. talk about how you connected with both of them and what it is like to play fiddle with Lissa and Hanukkah? Well, we all met at fiddle camp. Hanukkah lived in Port Orford, Oregon, which has maybe one stop sign, like not even a stop light on the coast of Oregon. And Lissa lived all the way in Maine and I lived in San Francisco, California. So growing up as teenagers, I mean, I think Lissa had already recorded an album. Like by the time. Of course she I did. Her, <laughs> it was like, she was already playing dances. She already knew all the tunes, you know, she, and, and Hanukkah had already won a couple of fiddle competitions. She would, they were both really good fiddle players that I, I, I I was just trying to keep up, you know, that was the kind of where I was coming from. I, I'm a couple, you know, I'm a few years younger, but also just, they had really devoted themselves to fiddling a lot earlier and, and you could hear it. You, they were amazing. 
I was just psyched that I got to play with them. Plus, we were friends, you know. Hanukkah introduced me. I think we both liked the band U2. And then she was like, oh, my God, have you heard Zuropa? Or, like, whatever new album had just come out. And just being, you know, doing fun and silly things. And they both composed tunes. And I had never tried to write a tune before. They were just already kind of firing in, in these really creative ways. They went they were they went to college first. I Hanukkah went to Berkeley College of Music, which is one of the reasons I was like, Oh my God, so how is it? Like tell me, should I go? You know? She was super excited about it. Lissa went to New England's conservatory. When we were in this sort of band together, you know, at at the beginning of college, most of the time I, I played the melody because that's they could think of the harmonies significantly faster than I could. I happened to know the melody, so I would just play the melody. And would they, like, improv the harmony? Yeah. They were already quite good with hearing the harmonies and playing them. And Hanukkah played piano, so she would also have, like, chordal ideas. I had no... I was like, what's a chord? The (laughs) piano player does that. That's the piano player's job. I play the melody. (laughs) Um, So it, it was very much, like getting to to watch people that were just a little bit ahead of you, but that you still had enough to offer. If you try to play with someone that like didn't grow up at fiddle camp, you don't have that automatic shared knowledge that allows you to just like, oh, okay, that's the kind of tune we're playing. Okay, this is where the groove sits. Okay, let's do it. Mm. You guys are icons. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about that. So you attended Berklee College of Music, and I read this essay. So when you first arrived in Berklee, which is like in the middle of Boston, you got a voicemail from Hanukkah inviting you to one of her classic all-night parties. And then that night you met Casey Dreesen. Dreesen. Um, You met Carrie Rodriguez, who is an incredible singer-songwriter from Austin, Texas, and a fiddle player, and cellist Rashad Eggleston. Those are facts. You're nailing it. And then, like, later on, you met Aoife. Truth. All these, like, incredible, like, top-of-the-line, you know, musicians. You met them when they were, like, children. Um, We were all children. Yes. It's true. What was that energy like back then? Oh, my God. Being that age in a in a city like Boston, which is just overflowing with music, not to mention being Berkeley is right in the middle of Boston, but New England Conservatory is what like four blocks away. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so close. Lisa Schneckenberger, Aoife, they went to um, to New England Conservatory, which is also where Corey DeMario, who played bass with Crooked Still, the band that Aoife used to be in. All of them went there. And then you have like Rashad and Casey and Carrie and me and Hanukkah at Berkeley. And it's it's just all right in this one neighborhood. And we even, you know, Hanukkah, Liz and I had the same teacher, like the same teacher taught at both schools, <laughs> Mimi Rabson. She was amazing. So, but just the idea that everyone that you came into contact with was excite, like fully excited about music was making music their life. Music was their passion. I mean, when we were at the party, we might not, there were times that we would jam. There was definitely a moment of the night where jamming would happen, but there was also like Hanukkah just playing whatever absurd pop music and making food and people socializing. And then maybe it would turn into a jam. I mean, every single person you met 
was just as hungry as you were. Was this in Hanukkah's apartment? It was like above, like yeah. the, the um, like hot dog place. Yeah, or, yeah, and just, like the Berkeley bookstore, it was like, like on right Mass there. Ave. Yeah, exactly. Ridiculous it location. A, it was ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing that we even got to have parties. I mean, when you go away to college and you all of a sudden are in charge of yourself. <laughs> it's, that's an incredible thing. And all these other people are also now just recently in charge of themselves in this city. There was so much silliness and so much, but there was also so much creativity. Like I remember going to people's recitals and getting to hear what they were working on or or, or getting to be an, ens- an ensemble, you know, with like Casey Dreesen. I think we, we, we were in the country ensemble. But Casey's actually the person who first showed me that you could sing and play the fiddle at the same time. And we were actually in Scotland at this festival called Celtic Connections. And he was like, check out what I figured out how to do. (laughs) And he did this arrangement of Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Of course, it was Casey Dreesen who can do anything with the fiddle. You know, he was chopping and playing all these chords and all these cool lines. Can you explain chopping? Yeah, chopping is a rhythmic technique where instead of drawing the bow like gently and supplely across the strings, you actually kind of drop the bow into the string so it makes a crunching sound, almost like a snare drum. Like That's what a chop is. Mm -hmm. And so it's a rhythmic technique where you're playing grooves that can also include bass lines, but your function is more like a drummer. Mm or part of the rhythm section, then your function is as a melody player, which is what you're used to hearing fiddle players do. Casey basically did this, and then he was like, you have to learn how to do this. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, right, like I'm ever going to do all the things that Casey can do. But he knew that I was a singer and that I wanted to, that I liked singing, and, and, and he could see that this could be something that I could use to more fully express what music meant to me, mm. being able to accompany myself. You know, it, it definitely took a couple of years until I was starting to figure out what that would mean for me or even to try to do it in public. Or I remember the first time I tried to really do it and I, I had been working on an album. I had arrangements that we'd worked on and there was this one tune that was a a relatively simple song which had some fun chords and I was in Montreal at a festival called The Big Meeting. I was there and someone said, oh, would you want to be part of Singers in the Round tomorrow? Or like where you would come and do a song. And I was like, sure, of course. But I also then realized like, I don't know any songs that I can just, I don't, I don't know any accompanists here. I guess now is the time that I'm going to do this. <laughs> so I sat in the corner at my friend Laura Risk's house and like, was like, okay, I have to, I have to learn... Like I can't just rely on whatever I think the banjo this is and like bass classic were doing. Cortese. Yeah, I was like, I'm, I just got to figure it out. This, I'm doing this tomorrow, so this is what I'm going to do now. So I figured out, like, I translated the arrangement we had onto my fiddle and and sang it at the Grand Rencontre. That was my first singing and playing experience, and and it worked. It didn't fall on its face. <laughs> I didn't have a train wreck, so I kept going. <laughs> Back in Boston, you started venturing out into the city, playing different venues, notably Club Passim, which we talk about in like 75% of the interviews on Basic Folk. Best place ever. Yeah. And I remember actually Matt Smith recently, um, Matt Smith of 
Klepasim, saying that you and Hanukkah started a string revolution at Passim. Oh, my God. And it seems like you started a string revolution in the city of Boston, like bringing together these two worlds that you were discovering, like the Boston roots rock that you'd find and singer songwriters like Rose Polanzani, Rose Cousins, yep. Session Americana. You brought those two worlds together of the Boston Roots Rock and the trad music world together. Can you talk about bringing the fiddle out to play at gigs in Boston? How you saw that evolution, what that journey was like for you? This is like, I'm like, wow, I started. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's funny because the way, from my perspective, I'm like, oh my God, Matt Smith gave us a home in Boston. Like from my perspective, he was coming to see us jam at the Hanukkah had ran this jam near North Station, and we would go do that every week. Matt Smith would come with Christopher Williams, singer songwriter who used to live in Boston. They would just like come and and watch the jam. As we started to have things that we wanted to do, we were releasing albums, and we started to perform. And Matt offered us a a place to come play. And so, from my perspective, he he saw a thing that was happening and gave us a place to do it that was actually a perfectly sized room with a perfectly responsive audience that that would be interested in that there were not a lot of spaces and rooms in Boston that were were conducive to the kind of like more acoustic music that we were playing mm. you know I mean I did my CD release my first CD release concert at Johnny D's I mean I had a great time there but the but like I think my bow kept hitting the ceiling like the ceiling was so low oh and, like, <laughs> and I just like I I remember feeling like I'm so glad that Club SEM has actually decided to be open to this genre. And of course, Hanukkah and I were, you know, some of the first people that maybe came in there and played there. Luckily enough, I mean, Hanukkah was always really good at um, rallying her her people, you know, so having a, a good crowd and it, it just started to go from there. But I think from from my perspective, I was hungry you know, meeting those people like the Rose Polanzani's, the Rose Cousins, I was so impressed by their ability to write their own music, personally express their ideas, coming out of a tradition that was about a shared repertoire that wasn't so much about expression, but about connection. I wanted both of those things. Like I wanted to have, to be able to have a place to come up with new ideas and I was a little bit feeling like, okay, I grew up playing these like Scottish and Cape Breton traditional tunes. And then maybe I learned some Appalachian tunes or I went up to Quebec and learned some Quebecois tunes, but I don't come from any of these places. I've, I felt like a personal lack of authenticity that I wanted to find. And I just thought, wow, these, these singer songwriters, they don't have that problem. Like they are who they are and they express themselves. Mm-hmm. And if they do it well, we enjoy it but they're never not authentic. For me, it wasn't so much of wanting to connect to these worlds, but needing it, Mm. like needing community, but also needing an an outlet and trying to figure out how how I fit into their scene, but also to learn from them like, well, what what is it to write a song? And what do I have to say that's actually worth saying? And how would I say it in a way that would be authentic to me? So you started making records under your own name. 
You taught at fiddle camps. You had several bands. Halele, the anarchist orchestra, played an Uncle Earl for a little while. And of course, let's not forget how we first met playing in the Jolly Bankers with yes. Chris and Andreasen and Pierce Woodward, which, I mean, it's a classic love story um, where I had like a small crush on Pierce Woodward and decided to... Who didn't? I mean, he's he's like a dreamboat. And I booked the Jolly Bankers on WERS Coffee House. And then I (laughs) welcomed Kristen Andreessen and Laura Cortese into my life forever. I remember you played upright bass in Uncle Earl for a little while. Um, Shocking, yes. (laughs) Yes, playing in different bands like Session Americana, backing up people like Rose Cousins, you're getting your fiddle in a lot of different places, working out your own sound, writing your own songs. Can you explain what it was like for you as a performer in a world before you heard the music of Leslie Feist and then what it was mm. like for you after you heard her? Yes. Before, the, the, the sort of palettes I had available to me were traditional music or these like singer songwriter guitar based things. So traditional music, I mean they were both very like guitar centric, um like strummy acoustic guitar centric worlds. I had the idea that there there were words to a song, there was a melody to a song, there's a voice, there's a there's a backing band. But the acoustic world to me and what we were doing in in the singer songwriter fiddle worlds was really separate from like indie and pop music and alternative. It was just this, that was a thing that maybe I would listen to over there or it was something that I was only going to listen to. It was completely not accessible to me. Something you couldn't participate in. Yeah, couldn't participate in. No chance. I remember driving in my car and I think it was on the river when I first heard Mushaboom by Feist. It was an acoustic guitar, actually, and it was a, an upright piano in my memory. Like these are the these are central instruments in that song, Mishaboom, but they're they're being used not in the just strummy strum, folky acoustic way. They're playing riffs and they're playing lines. It's it's not exactly chamber folk either. It was just good pop music. It wasn't like electric guitar synth drum forward. It had a, a more playful, imaginative space. It just opened up the idea that anything was actually possible. That each of these musics, each of these instruments, was simply a texture that could be used to play a line, and it wasn't that they had functional roles that they were supposed to play. Like the fiddle is the melody, or the guitar is the accompaniment. You could pull and different instruments in to play a certain role. Mm. and get a a kind of a different sonic space. At that moment when I first heard that song, I mean, I'd probably written a few songs. I had written songs when I was 16 too that were just horrible, but but I had probably written a song or two that I was starting to perform out. But... It, it was the whole the whole writing material that then I could think of in this new way. I needed to do a lot of writing, coming up with words and melodies 
it wasn't just like, oh, yeah, the first song I write so good. <laughs> it was like so bad. <laughs> and I knew that I had no practice at it, that I had been playing fiddle since I was nine, but I had only really taken writing songs seriously for a few years. And in the seriously meaning that it was something I was trying to do. I put out an album called Even the Lost Creek. Was it 2006? But, but those that was like a collection of songs. I mean, I sang several other people's songs. I wrote two of my own songs. There's a few fiddle tunes on there. It's like very much a transitional record. You covered The Cure. I did cover The Cure. I remember Zach Hickman, who produced it, Zachariah Hickman, saying to me, I'm not sure that you're ready to make this album. I had had a previous album that had come out so long before that like for me it was like I need to put something out. And he was like, I think if you give this another year, you'll have more songs. And I was like, I just need to put out a record. The songs on it need to be good. I don't need to have written all of them. Very Laura Cortese answer. <laughs> Very Laura Cortese answer. I was like, I my first album came out when I graduated college. I've been playing those songs now on the road for four years, like 50 to 100 dates a year. Like I have to have something new to do. So he helped find those songs. I did a song of Josh Ritter's. I did a song of Kristen Andreasen's called Even the Lost Creek. You know, I, we collected things from different places to help that that transition happen. Sort of by the time I got to the the next album, I'd had more time to to write songs and come up with things that were ways that I wanted to express myself. But here we are in 2020. <laughs> And the songs for my newest album were written mostly in 2000, probably 17 to 2019, 10 years later. So you could say this whole experiment has taken 10 years mm-hmm. to this time. Out of that need, you started performing under Laura Cortese and the dance cards. And that concept grew out of an experimental period where you did a project with your string playing pals from Fiddle Camp. You did a project with your vocal friends from the songwriting community. And then you wanted to combine those two elements because it felt musically right to you. And so I'm wondering about like the evolution of the sound that we're talking about that took like 10 years to create. So when the band started playing together, everybody was brought together by the love of traditional American music, like old time bluegrass country Celtic music and the ways that it can be expressed in like a chamber folk setting with this like 10 year evolution did you feel like you had to slowly but surely develop this sound and become the band you are today? I would imagine there's a lot of like unlearning amongst other players who are from that kind of traditional world. And also in thinking about like how you like to work, you are very like focused. You see where you want to go. And you just want to get there. So if there was like some frustration in in the slowness of this evolution. I wouldn't say there there was necessarily frustration in the slowness of the evolution, but I I, I wasn't really thinking, oh, I wish that the string playing world would just get there faster. <laughs> I, I was living in these compartmentalized zones. Uh. They were getting closer and closer together over time. And it's now on this like California Calling definitely was was the first time that they were like 
kind of overlapping and bitter better now. I'm like, this, this is it. Wow. This was, this is what I was aiming for to some degree. I didn't necessarily know that it was possible. Like each album I was stretching myself and the players and in any, and in also whoever I was working with, you know, Sam Kassir, like he had, he had made all this kind of what I consider like normal music, (laughs) you know, he knows how to make normal music, music that people that don't know anything about music understand and are used to hearing and can articulate the instruments in it maybe even, but he, he comes out of understanding how to make those sounds and actually working with a band where no one plays guitar or drums or you know, keyboards. I mean, he plays keyboards, but like everyone is playing a fiddle or a banjo or a cello <laughs> or a bass, pushing him to, to think about how to, what to do with our instruments and pushing us to think about how to make music that someone that doesn't know anything about traditional music would feel an emotional connection to. Mm. I don't think, I don't think I knew where the sweet spot would be. I was just striving to, to see where, where we could go. And I think that's what's fun about the soundscape concept is that, okay, now we've done this one. So now we can, we can go to another one. We can push a little further. It doesn't stop just because you arrive at an album. All of the players in the dance cards are women, but in all the articles that I read and looked at, like over the years of being Laura Cortese in the dance cards, I think only one mentioned like an earlier article in the in mm-hmm. the formation of the band mentioned that you were an quote unquote all female group which seems mm. to be intentional can you talk about that presentation and why that's important to you that the dance cards being all women is not like a major part of the band's identity yeah i wasn't sitting there going i want to make a band that represents women in music or i want to be a feminist band i was when I first did this stringy version of the project or when I first did the vocal version of the project, I was playing the music with the people that I was most naturally connecting with. The people that when I would sit down at fiddle camp, oh yeah, would you, would you play this song with me? Happened to be these women or in Boston when we would get together to do harmony singing, it happened to be these women. And it wasn't until I actually got out on the road and someone was like, oh, you're an all-female band. That, and, that, and I kept getting that question that I realized that for whatever reason, and I don't think I fully understood it at the time, I was like, Are, is this really something that you're surprised about? Because I was surrounded by so many incredibly talented women who were out there making music under their own names or in bands and I, I was actually surprised at how people were, were thought it was something to remark on. And then I started to look around more and getting hired at more festivals and, or trying to get hired at a festival and, and being said, oh, we already have our all-female group. What? And being like, huh. what? You have like six all-male groups. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, and like sort of realizing that we were making a statement going and playing in a school and realizing that showing up as four women, what that would mean to the girls in that class to watch 
four women stand at the front of their class and play music to be on a festival stage headlining and what that would mean to the women in the crowd. I started to see that, yeah, that there was a gap, that there was an imbalance, that it was actually important that I felt most able to express myself in that environment. Like it wasn't just by chance that when I thought I want to express myself and I want to take this risk, I'm going to surround myself with these women whose opinions I value. I made that choice because I felt I could express myself in those spaces and that my opinion was valued in those spaces. And I wasn't having to fight for that kind of permission. It was a realization that happened through doing it that actually this is a precious thing that women can have this space. I want to continue to do it this way until I stop getting that question. When I stop getting that question, <laughs> I'll know that we've reached a place of balance. Mm. I hear it's going to take 200 years. I heard that too. So I'm not looking at stopping anytime okay. soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one hour into the interview, let's talk about the new record, Bitter Better, the new album. You made a record where you wanted to center the songs around music to make people want to move their bodies. Can you talk about why you wanted to do that and also the challenge in creating grooves with strings that would accomplish that? I wanted to do it because the world has increasingly, but definitely at that moment, there was a bit of a turning point in 2016 where um, the world was feeling like a very heavy place. And I was watching a lot of friends who had prior to that, I mean, had said to me straight out, oh, I'm not political. Or like, oh, well, I don't, I don't talk about politics or I don't care about politics or like whatever they said. And I was watching them become politically engaged and I was watching them take um, responsibility for the way things were going in our country. But I was also watching them and feeling myself become exhausted. Yeah. By what was required. And I, albeit it's very clear that all, all of what I've just said is something that perhaps only a privileged white person would would have had that experience in 2016. I didn't want to just make an album that would be a contrast to what was going on in the world that would would say like, okay, well, you need a break from that. So I'm going to make something light and nice. If someone were to come to a concert, if that was going to be a thing that people were going to do. <laughs> What's a concert? <laughs> What's a concert? If people were going to come to a concert, that when they would leave the concert, they would be more energized to continue down this path of reckoning that we realize every day is more and more necessary, right? Mm -hmm. And when Sam and I were talking about this, we were like, I, I used the words relief and release. We discussed how like what makes you do that. And I, I said, you know, I think moving your body makes makes you have that feeling. Like when I went through my divorce, I think about like, I have this one moment where my friend Chris Pappas was like DJing at Miles and Music Camp where you have been <laughs> and he was DJing and I was just all by myself. I think I was the only person on the dance floor, which is very weird to think about. Everyone else was 
probably swimming, and I was just dancing like in my own space and like just letting my body move and like shaking off like a lot of pain. Just thinking about how that kind of like moving your body in that way and feeling so free and so lost in that. Like if if we if, if that gives a person that feeling that they can keep moving forward, that's the feeling I want to inhabit with this album. And Sam was like, okay, well, that sounds like grooves. That sounds like bass lines. Like what makes your body move? These, you know, kinds mm. of things. Sam and I did a lot of back and forth. You know, he was like, okay, I want you guys to like record. We talked earlier about the sound of chopping, you know, like record all these sounds that you can make on your instrument. Chops, hitting the instrument, record these. And, and I'm going to see if I can build some grooves out of them. So he built some samples, you know, that, that were actually the, the drum beats for a song out of these kinds of chops and grooves, you know, that those were some of the things that we kind of worked on ahead of time. And other ones were, you know, coming up with those, those sort of like foundational pieces happened here in my house in Ghent, Belgium, Sam and Valerie Thompson, Zoe Gigano and Sumaya Jackson came for a pre-production like retreat. And some of those came up with, you know, us in the same room, with those things that Sam had already created, kind of coming up with new ideas on our instruments for some of the other songs, like whether it was, you know, a banjo loop that went throughout that was percussive mm. or, you know, a viola line or a bass line. That sounds so fun. It was really fun. It was the last time I had fun. No. <laughs> <laughs> so thinking about, I mean, I've mentioned this a couple of times of like how you are so... You're, you're a planner, you're pragmatic. Thinking about you at Miles of Music in such pain after your marriage ended and you're just like letting off all this tension and you're mm-hmm. in the moment and you're feeling, but I can also see your brain like storing away this information to like <laughs> use in the future for whatever project it is that you're going to work on. Um, So in thinking about these songs on Bitter Better were created to tap into a certain sense of resilience and relief. What is it like for you when you go through something like so traumatic as a marriage ending, being such a planner, always working on projects to move you forward? Where are you in that headspace when this is all going down like trying to channel your energy into music and projects and getting you to the other side mm. like what did writing these songs teach you about yourself and your own reaction to a crisis wow great question <laughs> i mean i think the actual crisis itself i i mean i did some some things like i was like i'm not drinking i'm not watching television i'm not going to have a Netflix. I'm going to like cancel my Netflix account because I was like, the first thing I have to do is not numb. Like the, the fastest way to get through this period is to just like feel it all. And that didn't mean to say, of course I, I did watch some television, but only if like I went out with a friend and they, we were like, we were like, we're going to a movie together. or Like we're going to go to someone's house and watch a thing. And I had a lot of incredible friends, but I, I really sank into you know, like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to exercise. I think my friend Aoife O'Donovan was like, Hey, do you want to, I'm going to be running the Brooklyn half marathon. Do you want to do that? And I was like, 
Yeah. <laughs> I had never run a half marathon. I mean, I was, I did run, but like I signed up for a half marathon. You know, I, I, I just put some things out there that had nothing to do with my previous life. Um, I also was really, because my ex was very involved in my music up until that point, all those projects we were talking about earlier that were highly creative, he recorded all of them. He was part of all of those projects. So I was a little bit like, like how much of this can I actually do? Where do, where do I begin and where did he stop and what skills have I learned? And can I even make music without him there? Which I mean, obviously as a, I had made music before him, I was aware that I could, but I wasn't sure where I felt confidence and where I, you know, so I actually sat down and I decided to do a a super traditional (laughs) sounding project that I just self-released completely separate from the dance cards where I said, okay, I'm going to spend six months writing as many fiddle tunes as I can. And then I'm going to go to three countries where I always feel super connected to their, the way they express their traditional culture. I'm going to record this with these people there because it was, it was like going back to the last place where I felt I belonged or like I had a sense of confidence. So I wrote these fiddle tunes. I went to Spain, Sweden, and Quebec, recorded this thing called All in Always. But I was in charge of the whole thing and I was deciding who was recording it and I was deciding how it was mixed and I was making all these decisions that I had left to my partner and it gave me that confidence back of like, oh yeah, I can do this. So like this divorce all happened like before California Calling, but it was way too fresh to really write about on California Calling. The only song on California Calling that is really about it is um, Skipping Stone. All the other songs on California Calling, thank you, are about like other romantic things that I was dabbling in, you know, other, other more casual things, other more definitely was not processing my relationship. In fact, the only reason I got Skipping Stone was I decided to write a batch of songs that my intention was to throw them away so that I could write all this like terrible stuff that you write when you're feeling really sad. F you. Which are like, <laughs> just like, nobody wants to hear that oh, yeah. on stage. Dylan made a divorce record, but he never released it. And then somebody no. was saying, like, they listened to it and they were like, nope. Yeah, good thing he didn't yeah. release it. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, it's like you have to express that stuff, but nobody necessarily needs to hear it. But I did share the songs with a few friends, and it was actually like Dietrich Strauss and David Champagne that said, you need to keep skipping Stone. You cannot throw that song mm. away. So that's why that song ended up on there. But n- now that I have all this distance from it because that my marriage ended in 2013 and I as I mentioned better better I'm writing these songs in 2018 2019 that kind of range I was able to look back at my own marriage think about other people's relationships think about my current partnership I was able to draw more of those strings out in retrospect to think back to how I felt and think back to things I was asked, you know, inquiring about back then, some of those lines, it took them years to bubble up. Mm. It took years, five or six years for them to even be something that I could grasp and not just feel that I could grasp as a, as a set of words to express an idea. Mm. Wow. Wow. (laughs) God. (laughs) And now uh, something 
different for you now is that you live with your partner, Bert. Rembik. Rembik. Um, who nice. is also a musician. This sounds fun. Chromatic button accordion. Yes. I know you have a, a knowledge of the accordion. Mm. A deep familial knowledge. Yes. Um, can you talk about what it means to you to like kind of let somebody into your life, into your music, who is your partner once again? Well, we have a rule. We don't let ourselves too far into each other's music. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it is a very, like, it's a conscious rule we talk about where we both have experience having been in, um, in deep with a partner and losing that relationship and, and feeling how unsteady the foundation is after that. Um, and that we would share musical ideas. We write tunes for other people's babies. We have decided, like in general, we've played at weddings, funerals, and, and for, you know, the birth of a new baby, but we've added pandemics <laughs> to the list of times we'll play together. It feels really healthy to have someone who I can play a song for and who it's, it's we're not going to play it together. We're not going to record it together he is going to listen to it and and sometimes he's like really i don't know <laughs> his band is his band and my band is my band and we support each other in those endeavors and we realize they're extremely important to the other person's identity so much mm. so to the point that like right i'm currently pregnant and we're awaiting our child and the one thing that we've talked about is like we know our lives are going to change. Having Adding a third person to the mix will inevitably change it in ways we can't imagine. But that music is so fundamental to each of our identities that we have to always also value that and support each other in, in maintaining that connection, even though it could seem like, oh, you know, maybe he should, he should take fewer gigs or I should maybe not do that next project. That, some of that might happen. I'll be interested to listen to this probably, you know, three <laughs> years from now and see what's happened. But um, we can't let go. We can let go of a lot of things, but we can't let go of any of that stuff that is central to our identity. Mm. All right. Let's talk about you and your fashion. This is the last <laughs> question. Laura Cortese. To me, personally, you have been an extremely important role model when it comes to fashion. You taught me how to shop. You taught me how to I be did? stylish. Yes. What? I credit you with any fancy style I might have. You are my fashion icon. Oh, my god! And especially thinking about the world that we came up with in Boston, like we were coming out of the 90s, which had terrible fashion, and into the early True. 2000s, which also had terrible fashion. And the people that we were spending a lot of time around, we love them so much. But looking at like pictures of um, Campfire, which is the mm -hmm. um, Club Passim's biannual music festival where lots of singer-songwriters performing in the round um, over four days. And Matt Smith on his Facebook has like hundreds of pictures of early Campfire. And you look at the people playing at early Campfire and you're like... Why are you wearing that? <laughs> but to me, in this musical world, along came Laura Cortese, Lissa Schneckenberger, Hanukkah Castle, 
and you guys were wearing amazing outfits on stage and it also yes. translated into real life. So right not just on stage. Right. We wore them. We wore those clothes and all Aoife, the time. Efa too and Oh, Efa. And Kristen. She's on another level. She's totally. Amazing. Kristen also. And Efa and Efa O'Donovan, Kristen Andreas and Laura Cortese used to live together in a very fashionable house in Watertown. What has been your evolution like? What has been your relationship like with clothing? How do you how do you feel about fashion? This is so interesting as you were t- talking. <laughs> I, I mean, I will say one of the things I love about a place like Club Passim, which I don't love about a city like New York City. No offense, New York City. I do love you. Anyone listening from New York City, don't think I don't love you. <laughs> but I sometimes feel a lot of pressure when I arrive in a place like New York where you have to look a certain way to belong. And what I loved about Passim is that, no, you just have to show up and sing a song to belong. And so <laughs> there's a there's a certain thing that I love about those outfits on Matt Smith's, you know, <laughs> photo, in Matt Smith's photos, where it just proves that, you know, these everyone belonged and it wasn't about image. That's not why you didn't belong because of image. You belonged because of the art. You totally. Were I'm thinking of like one image in particular. We we just had Laurie McKenna week at Club Passim for yes. her album release. <laughs> and there was like one throwback picture where she's playing in a round and she's wearing this like oversized t-shirt and like really big baggy black pants and like she's a queen she's a queen and I love that I I love that that is that that's the way that that is that that scene doesn't require that you show up and be some glamour you know some some kind of maven but also, I was thinking about how at UC Santa Cruz, like all the way back at the beginning of this interview, and I gave you that little, little nugget. I mean, I was the only person on the UC Santa Cruz campus, which was like a very hippie campus, who had shoe polish. I had, I like wore, like I polished my shoes when I was like, <laughs> I don't, I mean, I still, I don't do that that often, but I still do that occasionally if they start looking really grubby. But um, I always would put myself together, but also my grandmother who played the violin, she always put herself together. Like she always had, she always got her hair done. She always had like red lipstick on. She just always had nice clothes and she put herself together. And I, I grew up thinking that it was another way to express yourself. Like the the cloth that you put on your body is another option of saying something. And f- for me, who finds textiles beautiful and finds colors, I'm just I can enamored with bright colors and the and and you know choosing to put certain colors together. Like it's it's yet another option of expression. It's another artistic outlet. And so I think of I especially being a, like a student, college student, or early like musician, a lot of what I did was was vintage clothes because I could go into a used clothing store, find something with a bold print that happened to fit my body and, and feel really beautiful in it, but not spend a lot of money, but have that option of expressing myself. And I will say I've watched a transition, you know, happen for me in terms of I don't really love wearing vintage cuts anymore. I like wearing you know, jumpsuits, maybe more than dresses, but it's still about expressing 
and identity and, 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 and creativity. What I like to inspire in people, which is what I hope I inspired in you, <laughs> is an excitement to like express that in yourself. Like not that you're trying to look like a certain thing or show up and, and belong by looking a certain way, but that you're, it's, it's an opportunity to pl- be playful. Yeah. You're <laughs> a queen. <laughs> oh my god thank you sandy yeah you made a huge difference for me in my life well i saw this really great instagram post or was it on twitter i don't know but it was you and a cat and you're both wearing sunglasses and i thought that was very well styled <laughs> i was so the sweater that i'm wearing actually reminded me of you because i think one time you gave me a sweater that kind of looked like that yeah and i was like so honored to have nice. that Okay, Laura Cortese. Yes. Here we go. It's the lightning round. Okay. What was the first song you learned on fiddle? I think it was the Irish Washerwoman. Batman or Superman? Batman. What is your karaoke song? Oh, it's um, Dina Carter, Strawberry Wine. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Dogs or cats or something else? I do like cats, but I'm allergic. So I'll go with cats. What is your coffee order? Oh, I am very, I, I like a cappuccino, like a double cappuccino, but it kind of has to be at a place that's like really got great beans and like a great cappuccino machine and, you wow. know, particular. But I also, I mean, I also just like drink coffee that doesn't taste that good <laughs> when I'm on the road sometimes. <laughs> the way it goes. First album you bought with your own money? I think it was Cake. It was the album called like She's Going the Distance? What was it called? Fashion Nugget. Fashion Nugget, thank you. I think it was, that's definitely the first concert I went to and it could be the first album I bought. That was my next question. First concert, Cake. Oh nice, Cake. At the Fillmore in San Francisco. Nice! Mm-hmm. Last book you read? Last full book I read incredibly long time ago I'm very I'm like notorious for reading like 70% of a book um, I'm currently reading uh, two books though I'll just tell you what I'm reading which one is called the polyglot lovers which it's translated into English and it might be a Norwegian writer can't remember the name and the other is um, between the world and me which is Tanisi Coates flying or invisibility flying yes correct <laughs> Star Trek or Star Wars? Oh, hmm. I guess Wars. I don't know. Maybe neither. <laughs> Either, neither. <laughs> don't care. Wow. No opinion. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? I think it might be Brehm, Norway. It's like five hours from. Um, Oh my gosh. <laughs> Bergen, five hours from Bergen driving. There's beautiful mountains, lakes. I, I did a collaboration there um, for a country music festival and got to visit there, which is where this um, Sigrid Moldestad, a Norwegian fiddle player, she's from this, it's like this tiny, tiny little village. Like almost no one lives there. But it's just stunning. Norway. Yeah. Unbelievable. That sounds awesome. Laura Cortese, you have completed the lightning round. 
Woo. And you also get the prize for the longest basic folk interview ever. <laughs> we have been talking for... I was like, wow, this is going on forever. I know. We've been talking for almost two hours. Yeah. Well, you know, cut it out. Just cut it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. The new album is so beautiful. It makes me cry and laugh and dance and feel. Oh, that's all I could ever possibly want. Yeah. Thank you, Cindy. Yeah, it's been really been nice to talk to you. Basic Folk is produced by Laura McCarthy and also me. I produced this episode this week, which was a lot of fun. So thanks to me for producing. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. I'm Cindy House. I produced it and I host it, basically. Uh, and if you want more information and listen to all episodes of Basic Folk, you can get them wherever you get podcasts and at my website, cindyhouse.net. Basic Folk, part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. You did it. Okay, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.